Good morning. Happy Easter. I know that there are some who attend the church often who are always confused. I wear suits on Easter Sunday and on Christmas morning. No other time do I do it. But Easter Sunday is a suit Sunday, and so I appreciate all the weird comments and the condescending remarks about how you wish I would do that every week. Uh, it's super helpful. Uh, you get it on Easter and on Christmas. It's, it's, I, don't, it's, I think it's in Leviticus. I think it's somewhere in there that you can do that. I, I love to read. Anybody a reader in here? Anybody love fiction? I, I love a good fictional book. I'm always searching for kind of a new book to read. I'm kind of always curious about what are the best sellers and what are people listening to and reading. Uh, And and I love to read. I I love to read books. We were, uh, we had spring break this week with our kids and so we went to the beach and I read a couple books while I was on the beach, which is kind of a perfect day, I think. Uh, And, and, but I also have a subscription to Audible and I listen to books. Now, now I want to ask this question. This is a really important Easter Sunday question. How many of you, when you listen to a book on Audible, you say, I read a book? Just raise your hand. Just be honest. How many of you think they're lying? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I I do both. I I read the books with pages, uh, but I also listen to them, and I kind of say to all of them, I read this book. Um, but I love doing both, and so I, I, I found a book on Amazon. We were just starting a teaching series that we did uh, about death, and, and I found this book on, uh, on Amazon right before we were starting this. It's a fictional book. It's called The Measure by Nikki Ehrlich. Uh, it's not a great book. Uh, I, I don't recommend it for anybody. In fact, I didn't finish it. Uh, I might get through it. There's not a lot of plot, but it starts amazingly, all right? Can I give you this? Here's how it starts. One morning, everybody in the world wakes up, and on their porch is a box with their name on it. Everybody under the age of 21 doesn't get one, but everybody over the age of 21, there is a box on their porch, and it says, this is the measure of your life, is what it says on the box. And people are super confused. Like, they don't know, is this Amazon doing weird things? Uh, Like, what's happening here? Who did this? What does this mean? And so people started opening their boxes, and in their boxes, they just simply found strings. And there's some strings that are really long, like this. And it said, this is the measure of your life. There were other strings that are kind of medium strings that were in there. And then there's others that were really tiny. I apparently have lost my tiny string in between the two services. Somebody grab it for me. I know you can see it. Where is it? It's really important. All right. There you go. And some opened up and had a tiny little short string. And as the book tells the story, uh, what begins to happen is the people with the short strings This is the measure of their life. This is how many days, months, years they have left. Uh, If they have a longer string, this is the measure of their life. They have a long life that is ahead of them and that is waiting. And what's crazy is they start to discover that the strings are real and that the strings are actually predicting the future. And so in the book, they tell the story of how they are able to scientifically measure the exact. If your string is two inches long, that means you have two years. If it's Eight inches, you've got eight years. I don't know how it is. But there's all of these things that measure. The book is really boring. And that's, I just told you the whole book because the rest of the book is just talking about that. And there's not a lot of plot to it, and I'm not recommending it. But here's what I was caught up in. 
But we've been doing a series where we talked about death, and we based that series out of Psalms 90, verse 12. And it simply says this, and I want to read it in three different versions, the KGV, the ESV, and the NLT, because I think all of them have something significant. It says, so teach us to number our days so that we may apply our heart unto wisdom. ESV says, so teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. And the NLT says, teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. Scripture actually talks about when we know our days, when we're able to measure our days, when we're able to number our days, and when we know who our days belong to, we can truly live. And we grow in wisdom when we recognize that death is real. The one thing that every single one of us in this room have in common is that we are all going to die. At some point in our life, everyone in this room will die. This room, 100, 200 years from now, will be a whole new group of people. Hopefully some of our kids and grandkids. Hopefully some people that we know from the neighborhood that, we, that have, have come to Christ. And, and, and generationally, this church is a, is a, is a place of, of light for the community over and over and over again. But one thing that we all have in common is that all of us will die. It is coming. Death is going to happen. And some of us in this room have short strings and some of us have long strings. Some of us have many, many days, many, many years. And some of us, we don't know the time or the hour or the place we just know that at some point, our life could end. It's not the most fun topic to talk about. It wasn't the most fun series to preach. That's why I made Douglas do two of the messages. Uh, <laughs> but there is a reality for us that we live our life somewhere in between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. We live our life in this tension that death is real, that our days are numbered, that there is hurt, that there is pain, that there is brokenness, that there is sin, that there is trauma. All of those things exist in our world, and that is real. We can't deny it. But we also live in this space where we know that Jesus is the conqueror of death. We just sang amazing songs. You guys awkwardly swayed to a song that you should have been really moving towards. Some of you need to at least get a shoulder dip, like something. I, you know who you are. Right? Just watch your neighbor, something. There was, there was a lot of really standing still. There, we, we live in this space where resurrection is real and life is abundant and it feels like victory is all around us. And there are days when we wake up and it just feels like Good Friday. It feels like death. It feels like everything is bad. You, you wake up in the morning and you put your shirt on backwards and you button it wrong and you hurry out the door and you, 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 you hit traffic immediately and all of a sudden you're backed up and you know you're going to be an hour late to work and your day is full of Zoom calls. Like Zoom, guys, Zoom is a sign of hell. Like it is... It is the picture of what hell is like. I, I think that's in Leviticus also. Like you, there, you've got Zoom calls all day and your day is miserable and you get home and your kids get in trouble and like it's just a terrible day. You get a flat tire, I don't know, and it feels like this is death. This is the way it works. But then there's other days when you wake up and, and you wake up in the morning and your wife looks at you and says, husband, you are so amazing and I love you and you get a kiss and a hug and then you walk downstairs and your children are like, father, Thank you for all that you do for us. 
Thank you for the ways that you provide for us and care for us. Thank you for all the many sacrifices you've made as a father. I have made you breakfast, and I'm giving you a hug. And you walk out the door, and there's no traffic at all. And it's, it's, a, it's a miraculous Monday in Atlanta. There's no traffic. And you pull up to your office, and there you have parking lot favor, right? There's a parking spot right there, front and center. Brother Grace, amen, who used to attend our church, whenever he'd find a great parking spot with me, he would say, blessed and highly favored. That's what he would say every time we would find a parking spot. You have, like, everything feels like it's going right. And, and the reality is we live between the tension of Good Friday and Easter, but I think for most of us, we live most of our time on Holy Saturday. It's the space in between those two spaces. Sure, there's pain and trauma and hurt and hard things that we experience. Sure, there's death and there's sin and there's brokenness. And sure, there's days when it feels like all is right in the world and everything is as, is as it should be. But for most of us, most of the time, we just live in this space where it's silent. It's the day between Good Friday and Easter. Some call it Holy Saturday. Some call it Silent Saturday. It's the day where there nothing really happens. The disciples just go through their everyday life. They do their normal things. They wait. They quietly go through their life. And I think most of our life is spent there. Lewis Smeedy says this. He says, waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what we hope for, we wait in darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Shelley Rambo, in her book, Spirit and Trauma, The Theology of Remaining, compares the disciples' Holy Saturday to the experience that many of us experience around hurt and pain and trauma in our world. Whether that's from a natural disaster or from sickness or from death or from loss, we all experience this. And here's what she says. She says, after trauma, we are in a Holy Saturday place. We can't go back because what has happened has actually happened and it cannot be undone. But we also can't see a way forward. We can't imagine a changed future. The past affects our present and our future. And we have less control over things, over people, and even ourselves than we care to admit. And we feel powerless because we are powerless because we cannot change the past. This is where we find the disciples in Matthew chapter 28. Can you imagine the trauma over watching someone be crucified? Even if it was someone you didn't know. Just to see the pain, to see the violence, to see the terribleness that exists in humanity that would actually use a torture chamber as a way to crucify and kill people. And can you imagine that even more when it's someone you love who you watch being crucified? Can you imagine the trauma and the pain of that? Can you imagine the disappointment for the disciples in that moment of feeling like I just gave up three years of my life. I sacrificed everything. I gave up my business. I bet everything on the fact that Christ was the Savior, that he was going to do something special. I put everything, all of my chips were in the Jesus basket, and now I don't know what is happening. I don't know what I do now. Do I go back to fishing? Do I go back to being a tax collector? I don't know what I do right now. Can you imagine the confusion and the fear? Can you imagine the fear around any moment there could be a knock at the door and the Romans say, you're next. 
We know you were with Jesus. We know you were one of his disciples. We've crucified him, and now we're making sure we kill this entire insurrection, and we take care of every one of his followers. There is a tendency to hide in the trauma. There is a tendency to stay in Good Friday. There is a tendency just to lock yourself up and to stay in one space. That's why we learn so much from the women who followed Jesus. In Matthew chapter 28, we see them teaching us one of the most powerful lessons we receive in all of Scripture. And it starts with this. When it feels like God is silent, we do what is faithful. When it feels like God is quiet, we do what is faithful. Matthew chapter 28 says this. It says, now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Here's what they're doing. They're getting ready to put spices on the body. Uh, in that time, bodies who were not buried would begin to smell, right? Uh, there was not a long lifespan for people in that time, and there was a need to put spices on the body so that there wouldn't be a terrible smell in the entire city. And so that was what would happen to all of the bodies. Now, Jesus' body was taken by Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a, was a follower of Jesus, uh, and, and he went to Pilate, and he said, I want his body. Nicodemus, who was also a, a follower of Jesus at that time, was a part of this as well. And what they did was they decided Jesus was going to receive 75 pounds of burial spices. That's what, that's what a king or, or, or a, a, a very important person would receive. They have already honored him by wrapping him in linens. They found a really amazing tomb, right? So it wasn't just buried in an unmarked grave somewhere. These men paid to honor Jesus because they knew who he was and they knew what he represented and they fought to, to be able to do this. And so the women wake up. Now, all the disciples are hiding. There's rumors that they're in an upper room. That's where we find them at Pentecost. But they're hiding somewhere. They're waiting. They're staying. And they're just waiting to see what will happen. But the women are up early. They're up at the crack of dawn. And they're going to take these spices. Now, there's a number of different theories as to why they're doing this. Some would say that they didn't know what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had done. And so they were trying to honor Jesus with the best of what they had and to bring their spices, which we find in Scripture over and over again. The woman who dumps the spices and the perfume on his feet and wipes them with her hair. We see these pictures over and over again. So they're bringing, again, the best that they have to honor Jesus. There's some that would say this is like a secondary version of it, like for very wealthy people, they get anointed multiple times with spices, or they make sure every day that your body's not smelling. There's lots of weird things here, right? This is not common for the way that we would experience death or we would experience a funeral. And then lastly, there's some that would say they just wanted to doubly honor Jesus, that he had already been honored by some, but they wanted to bring the best of what they have. And so the women collected their money, collected the resources that they had left, and said, we want to bring spices and we want to come to the tomb. Whatever is happening here, they are doing the hard work of being faithful when everything seems lost. I think that's a lost art in our culture. It's really easy for me, the older I get, to become more cynical. Are you with me? That even when I hear good news, I think, well, you know, maybe there's some ulterior motive in that. I'm not really sure that's true. Right? When we see a celebrity or somebody do good, you're always like, ah, they just placed the cameras there for that moment. It's just a... It's easy to be cynical. 
It's easy to live without hope. It's easy to give up. It's easy to sit in the space and just say, I'm just going to wait for something to happen to me. I'm going to wait for God to bring a miracle. I'm going to wait for the miraculous to come. But the women who follow Jesus didn't just wait. They faithfully walked. They faithfully walked it out because cynicism is easy, but hope takes discipline. Hope takes discipline for us every single day to believe and trust. And there's two temptations for us. One is that we become disattached to Friday. And we pretend like hurt and pain and death and all of these things aren't real. We numb ourselves. We hide from it. We pretend as if there is not death in the world and there is not brokenness and that there is not pain. And we just give ourselves to sitting in Saturday and waiting. The other is that we give up hope. And we stop believing that there's areas of our life that could be resurrected. We stop trusting that every area of my life can be resurrected in the same way that Jesus is. We, we stop trusting that there is Holy Spirit power and authority that has been given to us. We stop believing that there's life in all of these spaces. But when we do the hard work of faithful following and waiting, we see clearly when heaven breaks through. The ones who see the miracle are the ones who are faithfully doing the work. They see it first. They recognize it first. They have eyes to see what Jesus is doing and what he's up to. And I would say the same principle applies to us today. There are way too many of us who want a miracle, who want breakthrough, who want resurrection, who want life, who want something special and incredible to happen in our lives, but we're just waiting on Saturday rather than faithfully going to the tomb. And the ones who see him first are the ones who wake up early and get to the tomb God also made it really easy for the, for the women to see. Verse 2, it says, And behold, there was a great earthquake. You would notice that. And an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. You would notice that. And the stone was rolled back, and he sat on top of it. I like that. He just, just like pushed it back and then just chilling up there on top. You would notice that. His appearance was like lightning. You would notice that. His clothing was white as snow. You would probably notice that. And, and for, for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said this to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. If I'm the women in that moment, I'm not sure if that's what I know that I'm doing. Right? Were they seeking Jesus? They, I mean, they were going with the spices. They were going to honor Jesus. They were going to pay some respects to Jesus. But I don't think the women walked to the tomb that morning expecting to find the risen Jesus sitting there. But there is this principle that when we seek him, when we seek him in the little things, when we seek him in the faithful things, when we seek him outside of just showing up on a Sunday morning, when we become the people who seek him in our challenges and in our pain and in our brokenness and in our hurt and in our victories and in our wins and in our workplace and in our homes and in the quiet moments where we're sitting alone at night, when we seek him in those moments, we actually find him. Those who seek him will find him. And it's equally true that those who don't, won't. We, we've kind of learned how to have an appearance of seeking after Jesus, haven't we? When, when, I was a, when I was a dad, and I know that some of you dads, how many dads have kids that are young in the room? Under, under 10 years old, raise them high. Under 10, all right. Uh, uh, here, here, here's my question for you. How many of you have been watching a game, and it's a really good game, and you really want to watch it? 
or you're working on a project for work and you're busy and you're trying to get it done, or you're reading a book, you're doing something that you're enjoying and your children are there and you are playing fake hide and seek with them. (laughs) How many of you have done this? Okay, good. Appreciate the honesty. There was less honesty in the first service. Uh, You guys are more faithful. Uh, I, I can remember I, I would be watching a game and I would be like, yeah, Claire, go, go hide, baby. And she'd be like, are you looking? Yeah, I'm looking. <laughs> it just got them out of my way so that I could watch the game, right? There, there, there's an easy way for us sometimes to have the appearance of seeking when we're not really seeking him. I, I, I think you could show up to church every single Sunday. I think you could listen to me teach every single Sunday. I think you could sing the songs and sit in the front row every single Sunday and you could never seek Jesus. Are we seeking him? It's the question the church has been asking from generation to generation to generation on Easter Sunday. Are we seeking him? Like honestly, with all of our heart, are we looking for him? Are we paying attention to, to where he is and what he's doing? Verse 6 says this, He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Which leads us to our next principle, which is sometimes we seek him in the wrong places. Sometimes we're looking for him in the wrong places. Remember when Jesus' parents are looking for him when he's a child? And he said, didn't you know I'd be in the church? Why are you looking over there? Didn't you know I'd be here? Sometimes I think we only look for Jesus in the church. Sometimes I think he wants to reveal himself through the world. Think about the disciples. When Jesus called all of the disciples, do you realize that he didn't call one of them from the church or from the synagogue? He didn't go and say like, all right, I'm going to find the guy that is standing up front like I am right now, who's got some scripture memorized, who's doing the things. I'm I'm going to find that guy and I'm going to call him. He goes to their workplace. They found Jesus. They discovered their calling. They discovered their kingdom dream when they were fishing in their normal work day as a fisherman. Matthew discovered him as a tax collector sitting in the tax booth when Jesus said, This is your calling. I think for way too many of us, we just are seeking him through a word. We're seeking him through a song. We're seeking him through a verse. We're seeking him through all of these different things. And Jesus wants to say, I am everywhere. You can find me in the face of a homeless man who's asking you for money. You can find me in that coworker who drives you crazy because I created them and my image is placed in all of them. You can find me when you walk outside and look at the clouds in the sky and see the creation that I've made. You can find him everywhere. The issue is not that God doesn't want to be found. The issue is that we're not seeking him. And so are we looking for him in the right places? Are we looking for him where he's at? Verse 7 says, Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him See, I have told you. I love the see, I have told you. It's like the angel just had to get like an extra. It's like when you're yelling at your kids. See, I said it, right? It's, it's, I, I got that extra thing in there. He, he, he says, listen, as you've discovered all this, as you know all of this, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and tell. If you know that life is here, if you know that resurrection is here, if you know that death has died, that death has no sting, that death has no power over us any longer, then the only thing that you can do is go and tell everyone about him. 
Revelations chapter 12 says we overcome the, the enemy by the blood of the lamb, right? Which is what Jesus did on the cross. We overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Jesus did part of that, right? Jesus did the work on the cross. We couldn't do that. We couldn't die. We couldn't be buried. We couldn't be resurrected. We couldn't win in that area. But what we can do is we can share the word of our testimony, And this is the greatest work that the church does, guys. We borrow each other's faith. There's moments where where I'm living in Good Friday and everything feels broken and everything is falling apart and it feels like I don't have any faith and I need to borrow somebody else's. I need a testimony. I need somebody to tell me of how God has been faithful in their life. I need them to tell me how they've overcome this is the beauty of the church. Like, I, I, I love around the church, like, there's so many people who are empty nesters here at the church who have helped Sarah and I navigate our son going off to college for the first time and who've told us it's going to be okay. He's going to take showers. He's going he's gonna to get good grades. He's going to eat food. Like, it's going to be okay. We didn't have faith for that, right? I did not have faith that he was going to shower daily, and he's doing it, right? God, God is so good. Sorry, Cole. Uh, we... There, there, there are these moments as a church where we need each other's stories and we need each other's testimonies. And so there is this picture of once you discover that Christ is risen, then you go and you tell. And you listen to other people's stories and their testimonies of, of how they've overcome. Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell the disciples. That, that phrase, fear and joy, is what stood out to me here. And I, I first, I started thinking about, like, when are there moments when we experience fear and joy? I started thinking about when you ride a roller coaster when you're a kid, and there's this joy of, like, ooh, this is fun, and then there's this fear. But, but as I get older, it, I only experience fear and nauseousness uh, on a roller coaster. Like, that's all I, uh, in fact, I think that's all I've ever experienced. I just didn't, youth is wasted on the young. I didn't know that this wasn't fun uh, and, until I got older and now... And I'm so grateful that my children are grown, and I don't have to do that anymore. Um, maybe grandkids, do grandparents, do you have to ride roller coasters? Anybody? A few of them do. I'm going to say that you don't have to. I think that's also in Leviticus, right? I think that's a rule. When you're a grandparent, you don't have to, you don't have to do that. Uh, but but I, don't, I don't think that's a good picture of it. I don't, I don't think that's complete. Here, here's what I started thinking about, fear and joy. I started thinking about the day where I stood at the church right here front and center and my wife walked through the back door and walked to the front and I, there was a lot of joy, right? I was so excited. I get to marry my best friend. This is the greatest day but I was also terrified because I was like, I don't know how to be a husband and I don't know if I'm gonna be too selfish and I'm not sure how this works. There was fear and there was joy, Right? I started thinking about in the hospital room the very first time they handed me Caden and Cole. And when they handed me my sons and I look at these little babies and I'm like, I don't know what to do with it. When do we feed it? What do we do? Like there was this fear, right? Of I'm responsible for these little humans. I remember when Claire was adopted, the moment that they brought her out to us and handed us to her for the first time, I remember this moment of this incredible joy and passion and excitement, but also this fear of, can I be a daddy, and can I sacrifice what needs to be sacrificed, and can I provide, and can I do all of those things? I feel that fear and joy when I preach. 
Right? I, I love that I get to stand in front of people and tell them about how much I love Jesus over and over again. It's one of my favorite things that I get to do, but there's this fear always that I'm not good enough, that I'm not smart enough, that I don't know enough, that I, I'm going to screw it all up, that I'm going to do something stupid or say something stupid, and all of those things exist. I think life is lived best in the fear and the joy. Are you with me? I think the greatest moments are those moments where it feels weighty and it feels holy and it feels hard and it feels challenging, but there's like, but it's going to be good. It's when you start a new job and it all feels overwhelming, but there's this joy of there's something out there ahead of us. This is the fear and joy that they walked in. Verse 9 says, behold, Jesus met them and he simply said, greetings, And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. And my question for us today on Easter Sunday, I don't know how often you come to church. This may be the one time a year that you do. And my question for you today is if Jesus were to meet you on the road today, what would he ask you to do? What would he invite you into? And I think there's some in the room who would be like, there's some kind of shame and guilt kind of thing here. Jesus would tell me to knock it off, right? Jesus would tell me to stop being an idiot. Jesus would tell me to quit doing this or that, and maybe he would. But I think more than likely, Jesus would greet you, and he would simply invite you into the best thing for your life. Because here's the thing about Christianity, guys. I have no shame or guilt or fear ever standing in front of an audience of I don't care how many people and saying, I want to invite you to know Jesus because I really believe knowing Jesus is the best life you can possibly live. Here's what I'm confident of as your pastor. There is death, and it hurts. And there is brokenness, and there is sin, and there is pain, and there is trauma, and the longer you live, the more you'll experience all of it. And the temptation is to be cynical and to say nothing's ever going to get better. But I'm also confident of this. There is life. And Jesus is good. And a life with him is the best life imaginable. And he invites you to know him because it's the best thing that's available for your life. And so today we're going to move into a time of communion. We, we did some baptisms in the first service, which is beautiful. And I love the imagery of both baptisms and communion. Because in baptisms, you go underneath the water, and as you go under the water, there's this picture. It's like a, a, a visual illustration of death, burial, and then when you come out again, you're resurrected. And as we take communion every week, we take the the bread and the juice and we remember the the body of Christ that was broken for us and, and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. But I think sometimes we enter into these kind of liturgical moments and we do it with this like somber, slow, I gotta spend all of my time thinking about the cross and thinking about the burial and thinking about the death. And I think there's a time and a place for that. I think there's times when it's really important for us when we're worshiping Jesus to say thank you for the pain you experienced on the cross. Thank you for the blood that you shed. Thank you that your body was broken. I think there's a part of that that is very real, but I also think there are moments when we should take communion and when we dip that bread in that juice, we should remember that if Jesus' blood can be resurrected and if death can have no power over him, then any area of my life can be resurrected. 
than anything I'm experiencing. A broken relationship, a sickness, a pain, a loss of job, a loss of finances, whatever that thing is you're experiencing in your life, Jesus can resurrect all of it. And his invitation is simply, meet me on the road and worship me. Meet me on the road and worship me. And when you do, I promise you, I will show you things that you never hoped for or imagined. I will show you things that you could not understand if somebody sat and told you what your life was going to be like. There is an invitation from Jesus into a life that is beautiful and wonderful. And so as we go to the communion stations, there's stations kind of spread out all over the room today. I want to invite you today not to think about burial and death. I want you to think, where is Jesus inviting me to live? Where's he inviting me to live? Where am I stuck on Good Friday or just hanging out on Holy Saturday and he's inviting me to Easter Sunday? Where's that space where he's inviting me to be the one who faithfully gets up and faithfully goes to the tomb early in the morning and faithfully walks out my faith? And where's he saying, I I can conquer everything. If, listen, if death can't defeat us, what can? That's why the early church was able to say, where, oh, death is your sting. Paul was able to say, what are you going to do? You're going to kill me? I'll just go to heaven. I'll be with Jesus. What's, what, what can you take away from me that hasn't already been given to me by God? There is this beautiful invitation. And so we're going to come. We're going to take communion. Our prayer team is going to gather up here. If you want to pray, if you want to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior today, we would love nothing more to invite you to do that. We've got the baptisms full of water. Somebody wants to get baptized, just come grab me. I'll get in in my soup pants. I don't care. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll make it happen. Uh, but today, let's worship him like the, like the women did at the tomb. Let's posture ourselves in that position. Let's be like them. So, Heavenly Father, I just thank you that you are risen. I thank you that you are good. I thank you that regardless of the amount of days that we have left, that you are the owner of our days. And that you teach us to number the days that you own and to walk faithfully with you through all of it. I pray that you would reveal your goodness to those who doubt your goodness. I pray that you would reveal your power to those who doubt your power. I pray that you would reveal your grace to those who doubt they are worthy of it. And I pray that you would resurrect every area of our lives and that this place would be an Easter Sunday church. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can take communion.
this last part is our prayer this morning. Let's declare this. To the broken, I'll witness At the close of every service at Grace Marietta, I, I get to do my favorite thing as a pastor, which is just a prayer of blessing. It's called a benediction in the liturgical church. I don't, we just do it here. And uh, it's my chance to just bless you on your way out. And so I want to invite everybody to stand up if you would. I want to invite everybody to just hold out your hands to receive the blessing. And I just want to pray a blessing for you as you go this week, as you spend this day with your family at lunch or down with Easter egg hunting. It's going to happen in just a minute uh, and pray for you this week. So let's pray. May you be the first to the tomb in the morning. May you be faithful even when God is silent. May you seek him and may you find him in every area of your life. May you find him on the road and in the church. May you worship him and may you live to tell the story of his goodness. May you leave this place encouraged that if he can rise, then you can also. And may every area of your life that feels dead be resurrected by the living Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we as a church be the witnesses who seek and go and tell the world of his goodness and his graciousness. And all God's people said,